Who's ever gotten pulled over for speeding? Oh. <laughs> Somebody said my wife. That's pretty good. <laughs> Caught me off guard there, Larry. <laughs> All right. So I want you to just for a moment imagine yourself in a courtroom. You are the defendant and you know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. The prosecutor has an airtight case, zealous prosecutor, and is preparing to throw the bookages, is going to seek the highest sentence maximum, maximum penalty. When the bailiff calls the court to order, you stand up and the judge enters the room and you realize that the judge is God Almighty. How do you feel? How do you feel? You know you're guilty. We're in the middle of a series that we're calling God Blank Us, and we're looking at this relationship between God and humanity through the eyes, through the lens of Jesus. And as we've gone through the series, I've showed you that there are different ways that different religious systems throughout time, and even different versions of Christianity throughout time, have described this relationship between God and humanity. And, and there's somewhere, you know, in some religious systems, God is, is just, he just, the God or gods or the divine or whatever, just uses people, just creates people, just needs, needs people to serve the gods so the gods can eat. There's all sorts of different systems, but, but we've seen so far that in Jesus, Jesus reveals to us an entirely new understanding of what it means for God to be in relationship with humanity. We've seen that in Jesus, God is with us. We've seen that in Jesus, God loves us. Us. And today we're going to look at a, another aspect of God's relationship with humanity through the lens of what has been done for us in Jesus Christ. And we're going to do so by looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll put the text up on the screen as usual. Um, we're going to begin in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, near the, end of the, near the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul says at the end of the chapter. Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to these things? And by these things, he's referencing the things that he's been talking about so far in the, le in the letter. God's love for people, God's love for sinners, God's power in his people through the Spirit, God's ability to work even in suffering to bring about good for his people. And Paul says, looking back on everything he's written so far, what shall we say in response to these things? And he concludes, based on these response, uh, based on all of these things, that God is for us. And he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And this concept, this idea of God for us is pretty unique in the history of religious traditions in the world. This idea that the all-powerful God would be for humanity, on the side of humanity. What Paul is saying is God is on our side. This is a pretty big deal to have God. And, and God's not on our side because we offered the right sacrifice, right? God's not on our side because we gave him our best cow, right? We didn't bribe God to be on our side because of our offerings. God chose to be on our side because he loves us. Because he loves us. God is on our side. This is huge. 
Different religious traditions get this wrong. Even aspects of Christianity get this wrong. They they paint God. You may be familiar with a a sermon that was preached by a famous preacher uh, several centuries ago, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he describes us humans that God is just, he's holding us like a spider over the flame. This is a Christian preacher, and he's wrong. He's wrong. That's not what God is like. God's not holding us like a spider over the flame, just taunting us. And if we just. God is for us. And Paul asked the question if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is a rhetorical question. Paul is a brilliant speaker. This is a rhetorical question. In other words, he's saying if God is for us, then nobody can possibly stand against us. If God is on our side, Nobody can possibly stand against us. Imagine you're I'm trying to think of a good analogy here, right? You're, you're a kid on a schoolyard, right? And maybe you're being bullied by, by some of the stronger kids. And then all of a sudden, like Arnold Schwarzenegger walks up behind you, right? And he's like, I'm on your side. Right? If Arnold Schwarzenegger is for you, then nobody, no schoolyard boy, nobody else can possibly stand against you. The comparison here is even bigger than that. If God is on our side, then nobody and nothing can stand against us. He goes on to elaborate with another rhetorical question. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, God is so much for us that he gave his son for us, for our salvation, for our healing, for our redemption. And what Paul says, if God is going to give his own son, think, those of you who are parents, what do you value more than your children? Nothing, right? I can't think of anything that I value really more than my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my children. And if God, Paul says, if God is going to give his own son for us, what else is he possibly going to withhold that we might need? It's another rhetorical question. The answer is obviously nothing. Right? If you would give what's most valuable to you for someone, then that means that you would give anything for them. There's nothing that God will withhold from us because God is for us. You see, we were in bondage. Scripture tells us we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to Satan, the devil. We, 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 we were in bondage. We were held captive by sin and Satan. And so to release us, to set us free, God paid the ransom. And the ransom he paid was the life of his own Son. And if he's willing to pay our ransom with the life of his own son, what would he withhold from us that we need that is good for us? Paul's, the, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously nothing. There's nothing that God will withhold from us because God is for us. Now, here's where Paul's going to shift a little bit. He's gonna, here's where the courtroom scene that I talked about at the beginning comes into focus. He's going to start using language that's explicitly related to uh, the courtroom, to, to, to law. Here's what Paul says. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The word charge, it's like an indictment. You might be familiar with indictments. If somebody is indicted, it means they're brought up with a formal charge for wrong, wrongdoing. 
And so Paul asked the question, who is going to indict any of God's people? Who's going to bring up an indictment? Who's going to bring up a charge against any of God's people? Then he asks another rhetorical question. He says this. He says, will God the justifier? Will God the justifier? In other words, what he's saying is that God, who is, we, we believe God to be the, the ultimate, the final, the, the absolutely just judge, and if God is the justifier, if God is the one who declares us to be in the right, who declares us to be justified and righteous in his eyes, if God declares us right, declares us just, who is going to bring up any charge against us? It's another rhetorical question. Obviously, it's not God. Obviously, God's not the one who brings up charges against us. And as you read through the scripture, we realize there is somebody. There is somebody who brings up accusations and charges against God's people, and it's not God. God is not the accuser. God is not the prosecutor. God is not the one demanding strict justice. That is the accuser. That is Satan. That's the devil, whom Scripture calls the accuser of God, accuser of the brethren. Accuser of the, there's my King James coming in, right? Accuser of the brethren. That's Satan. He's the one who accuses. But if, but if God has already declared us just, what Paul is saying here is that, that we've got the judge on our side already. There's a prosecutor who's laying every, and the prosecutor's right, right? We know we're guilty. The prosecutor's not wrong. But we have a judge who's already declared us right. Paul goes on with another question. He says, who's the one that condemns? Who's the one that condemns? It's another legal term. It means to, to, to declare guilty and, and to be sent off to punishment. Who's the one that declares us guilty and sends us off to punishment? He asks another rhetorical question. Is it Christ Jesus, the one who died and more than that was raised and sits on the right hand of God making appeals on our behalf? In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the, the one who could condemn you, which is God, the one, the, the ultimate judge, is, or, or Jesus is... Is the one who could condemn you. He's, he's, the, he's the righteous judge. But, but Jesus is the one who died and was raised, and he sits on God's right hand making appeals on our behalf, just like a defense attorney. So, so back to this courtroom scenario. Imagine there you are, you're standing in the courtroom. You know, the, the judge walks in, and it's God Almighty. And at first, you're like, oh, God's a, you know, he's a just judge. And I know that I'm guilty, and the prosecutor has an airtight case against me. But then, your defense attorney, the public defender who's been appointed to you by the judge, walks in, and you realize, my defense attorney is the judge's own son. My defense attorney is the judge's own son. Right? And so the prosecutor makes his case, and, he's, and everything he says is true. You know you're guilty. You know you've broken those laws. You know you've done those sins. But all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the prosecutor makes his case, and you see the judge and your defense attorney sort of smile at each other, this, this knowing smile. And the, your, your defense attorney looks at you, and he, he winks. He winks, and he proceeds to look at the prosecutor, and he says, I've already paid for it. He may be guilty, but I've already paid for it. And so you see that your defense attorney, who's the son of the judge, are working together on your behalf to declare you in the right. And nothing that the prosecutor says can do anything against you. Because the judge and the defense attorney are working together 
on your behalf. So what we see here is God is not an impartial judge. God is not an impartial judge looking at our lives and weighing them in the balance. God is a partial judge. He is on our side. He is for us. And our defense attorney is his own son. We've got the judge and the defense attorney in our pocket fighting for us. Declaring us righteous. Doesn't seem fair, does it? <laughs> Prosecutor's like, prosecutor has no power at this point. Can't do anything. Because the price has already been paid by your defense attorney in concert with the judge. They have skewed justice in favor of you and for me. Why? Because they love us. Because they love us. Because they're for us. Because they are on our side and they want what's best for us. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. Paul now switches from this law court metaphor to a metaphor kind of like marriage. He, he, he switches from using legal language to language uh, about marriage or relationships. Here's what he says next. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The word separate here in the Greek, it's a word that formally means divorce. That's what it means. Who can divorce us from the love of Christ, Paul asks? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall any of these things, he, he asks, divorce us? From the love of Christ. And he's so the, the categories he's talking about here, right? We have um, trouble or hardship. These are, these are physical challenges, right? Poverty, being without. We have persecution and sword. We have opposition from the outside. So what Paul is saying is that does, when we go without, when we, when we face physical hardship, does that mean that we are somehow separated from the love of God? If we face opposition, if we face persecution, does that mean that we're somehow separated from the love of Christ? And the reason he's bringing these things up is because these are things that his readers were experiencing. People, Christians in the first century, they were experiencing physical hardship. They were experiencing persecution and violence. And some of them were probably wondering, does this mean that I'm somehow outside of God's love for me? So Paul asked the question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall any of these things, physical hardship or persecution or any of these things, will, will, are these things signs that we are somehow divorced from Christ's love? He goes on to uh, quote some Old Testament. He says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Which this, this sort of seems out of place, but Paul is reminding his readers that, that for all of history, God's people have, that, that persecution has frequently characterized God's people. That they've frequently experienced hardship, and that, yet that God in all of these things has been present with them. So this leads Paul to his con conclusion. He says, no, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through him who what? loved us. God is for us and he loves us. So even in all of these things, even in persecution and nakedness and uh, trouble and hardship and persecution and famine, danger and sword, even in all of these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now this doesn't mean that, that we, we search for hardship, 
right? We don't go looking for hardship. We don't, we don't need to do that, right? If we continue in this life, we're going to face hardship. It's just going to happen. We're going to go through, so we don't have to go looking for it. But Paul says that just because we face hardship, that doesn't mean that we're outside of the will of God, that we're outside of the love of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that we don't have enough faith or we aren't believing enough. But Paul says that even in the midst of these things, we are more than conquerors because God loves us. And so he gives us an anchor of hope that in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trouble, we can have hope that God is still with us and God is still for us and working on our behalf. So Paul ends this whole section with, he just, he just makes this incredible statement. He says, for I am convinced, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say amen. amen. There you go. We need some more of that in here. <laughs> I am convinced, Paul says, I am convinced, I am persuaded that no sphere of influence Angels or demons, no aspect of time, present or future, none of the powers that exist out there, no physical space, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. The judge is on our side. Our advocate, the judge's own son, has paid the price for us. Because God loves us, and because of that, because God is on our side, God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, is on our side, nothing in all of creation can separate us from that love. Here's the bottom line. God is for us because God loves us, and nothing can separate us from God's love. Now, if that's not good news, I don't know what is. That even though we were guilty, we're guilty as sin and we know it, even though the accuser has an airtight case against us and we know it, and even though he demands the steepest price, the, the maximum penalty, and we know it, we've got a God on our side. The judge of the universe has already declared us to be right because his son paid the price. And all we have to do is accept it. And believe it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And then we're invited into this new life in Christ. Now, now that we've been declared innocent, now that we've been declared righteous and just, we don't go back to our old ways of living. We, we, we now accept this gracious offer to follow this defense attorney, this advocate who is our Savior, who is our Lord, and we follow his teaching, his example. He teaches us how to live and how to love in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father, who, by the way, is our judge. So this isn't an excuse, right? Paul, Paul will say in other places, this isn't an excuse for us to go off and to continue to live however we want, to continue in the ways that cause hurt and destruction and all of that before. This is an invitation now into a new life. We've been given a second chance, a new lease on life. To, and we've been given an, ex, an example to follow. And as we're going to see next week, we've been given a spirit 
inside of us that will empower us to live in a way that honors and pleases our Father, the judge. But Paul's point here is that neither Satan nor circumstances can separate us from God's love. Neither Satan nor circumstances can separate us from God's love. We have been declared righteous by a judge who is on our side. He's not impartial. If he was impartial, we'd be guilty, right? But because he's on our side, he sent his own son to pay the penalty. And the prosecutor now has no power over us. We are in right standing with God. We've been given an invitation to live in this new life in Christ, the life that Christ told us would be more than abundant. Life that's really life. All because we have a God in heaven, not who needs us to serve, who relies on us for food, who, who waits for us to, to mess up and then condemns us for our failures. No, we have a God on our side who has been and is actively at work for our good in all things. This is what God is like. And so every time somebody presents to you a portrait of God who's not on your side, you just shut that down because you know that God is for you. And because God is for us, that we, we know that even when God asks of us hard things, even when we go through difficult situations, even when, as Scripture tells us, God chastens or disciplines us, He, he, he does it not because he, he hates us or He doesn't like us, but because He wants the very, very best for us. He disciplines us. He chastens us. He, he calls us to a higher standard, not because He doesn't love us, but because He does. So even... When we, we read in other places that God opposes the proud, He opposes the proud, not because He doesn't like the proud, but because He loves the proud and He knows that pride gets in the way of the life that He wants them to have. All of the things that God asks of us, and God asks some things of us, He asks us to live in a certain way. He doesn't do that arbitrarily. He doesn't do that for no reason. He does that because as the designer of life, He knows that if we live according to His principles, we'll experience life that's really life. So even when things seem hard, we can take courage and take comfort in the fact that God is with us, that God loves us, that God is for us, and as we're going to see next week, that God is even in us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this promise. I thank you for this reassurance that as the judge of the universe, you are on our side. Lord, that we, we know that we're guilty. We know that we've fallen short, but we know that you, that's, that doesn't turn your love away from us. That in your love, you sent your son to teach us how to live and then to give himself for us that we might be set free that we might be liberated from the bondage that we were under in sin and Satan, that we might be healed and restored to right relationship with you. 
God, I thank you for the, the assurance that you are with us and that nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from your great love. God, I thank you for this wonderful news. May it transform us and inspire us to live our lives in dedication and allegiance to you. In Jesus' name, amen.